One of the things that really worries me is this idea that we will go back not to normalcy, but to COVID normal. Well, wrong, wrong, wrong. We want normal normal, and the sooner we're there, the better for everyone. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life. And now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be back with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. And just a reminder to all of our listeners to hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Tony, lovely to be back with you. There's a lot to discuss as always, and we are going to get straight into the topic which is on everyone's mind which is net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, Over the last couple of days, the Nationals have agreed to the Liberal position to adopt a net zero by 2050 policy. The specific form this will take is not yet known, but that is now the coalition government. Uh, Tony, I'd like to begin with getting your assessment of what has happened over the past couple of weeks and the developments regarding net zero. Daniel, I'm not going to get into a running commentary on things that may or may not have happened in the cabinet or in the party room, and I'm certainly not going to get into the business of being critical of the government, which, uh, after all, I put into office back in 2013. Uh, If the government has decided that uh, net zero is achievable, um, that's, uh, that's their business. Uh, I always thought, though, that it was very important that we didn't put lowering emissions ahead of uh, prejudicing Australian jobs, and that was always Labor's problem. It put uh, cutting emissions ahead of protecting jobs and uh, protecting people's cost of living. Um, I can only assume that the Prime Minister and the government have done the modelling, and the modelling Uh, is uh, strong, uh, that you can get to net zero by 2050 without prejudicing jobs. I guess I'd feel a little more comfortable with the decision if it was also part of a a decision to make uh, the most use of all the technologies and obviously the one proven way of getting to net zero in our electricity system uh, is to use nuclear power. And so far that appears to be just an option, not a commitment. Yeah, that's right. I, I find it surprising that nuclear and, and clean coal uh, aren't a part of the equation, at least not explicitly at the moment. Um, and that brings me to, I want to get your reaction to uh, some comments today by Senator Matt Canavan, writing for The Australian. He's, of course, been a uh, fairly outspoken against uh, net zero. Uh, and in his article today, Canavan uh, writes this, and I quote, is the point of the Liberal and National parties to deliver Labor and Greens policies, but just at a, at a slower pace, end quote. Obviously, 
not very happy with the current situation. Tony, can I get your your response to what Senator Canavan has, has put forward? Daniel, I've got a lot of time for Matt Canavan. He's a very intelligent, a very gutsy, a relatively young member of parliament. And frankly, I think it's a pity that he's no longer in the cabinet. Um, I wasn't a party to any of the discussions that have taken place inside the cabinet or inside the party room at this time. So it's really very difficult for me to judge. The big difference, though, between the Coalition and the Labor Party over the last decade is that all of us have wanted to get emissions down, but the Coalition hasn't put cutting emissions ahead of protecting jobs and people's cost of living, and Labor has. Uh, I assume that the government now is confident that it can uh, get emissions down further, faster, uh, without producing jobs and the cost of living. But whatever trajectory the government is on, I think we can be confident uh, that Labor will be on an even faster and uh, uh, less safe trajectory. And I'm pretty confident that that would remain the difference between the government and the opposition. That said, um, from where I sit, it seems that the best and surest way to get close to net zero anytime soon would be to move swiftly, uh, not just to lower emissions of uh, existing technologies like uh, coal and gas, uh, but to bring into Australia the one proven technology that we don't currently have to generate power, and that's nuclear. And I'm as I said, uh, a little disappointed that thus far at least the government hasn't been a little bolder on this front. I mean, let's face it, if we can have nuclear power at sea, why can't we have it on land as well? Tony, I'd like to put to you another quote by Senator Canavan, which gets to a, a much broader issue that you and I have been discussing over recent weeks about the role of major political parties. And I'm going to uh, give you the quote now and get you to respond. Quote, while I am disappointed at the decision of my party room to adopt a net zero emissions target, I will stay in the room because when you leave after losing an argument, the only people that win are those you oppose, end quote. Tony, can I get your, your reflections on what, you know, I think that's good news for Australia, for the National Party, that Senator Canavan is committed to staying there. What are your thoughts? Well, like you, I, I, very, much, uh, I very much applaud Matt for staying inside the tent rather than leaving the tent because when conservative people leave the coalition because it's insufficiently conservative, they just reinforce the very tendency that they object to. I've always said that if good people leave, worse people prevail. That's why I've always thought that the best thing to do if you're a little unhappy with the direction of the political party you normally support is to stay in and fight and, if possible, try to get uh, more like-minded people in so that uh, you can fight with greater strength in the future than you necessarily might have been able to do in the past. So I think it's wonderful that Matt is staying in. And obviously, it's going to be very important to ensure that whatever we're doing in respect of reducing emissions, that we make sure that the lights are on uh, and that we don't export more jobs overseas to countries which aren't as fastidious about emissions as we are, because not only is it important to get emissions down, but right now there is a developing great power competition between 
China and the US-led West, uh, and it would be a tragedy for democracy and freedom if we in the West made ourselves economically weaker and ultimately militarily weaker in the pursuit of lower emissions when China was doing no such thing itself. No, it's an important point about China, of course, accounting for about 30% of emissions. Australia accounts for about 1%. So ultimately, any global effort needs to include China. Tony, I'd like to get your, your reflections, given your experience as leader of the Liberal Party, leader of the opposition, and as Prime Minister. Can you help us understand what are some of the challenges involved in managing the relationship between the Liberals and the Nationals, not necessarily just in relation to net zero or climate policy, but just the broader leadership, uh, strategic opportunities and challenges. How did you manage that when you were Liberal leader and, and ultimately Prime Minister? It wasn't a huge challenge for me in my time because I think I was pretty like-minded with the National Party leader I had, uh, the wonderful Warren Truss. And certainly I don't think it was so much of a problem for John Howard, because in his time, he was very like-minded with the National Party leaders he had, uh, Tim Fisher, uh, John Anderson and Mark Vale. I think it only becomes a problem uh, when, well, obviously there's been a, a bit of a difference recently over, over, over net zero. Um, I suppose we've got to accept that there are different cultures to some extent in the two parties. Uh, the Liberal Party straddles uh, the city and the country, whereas the National Party is very much a country party, a regional party. And we've just got to understand that country people do tend to approach things from a slightly different perspective. Um, that said, uh, I didn't think it was a problem in my time. And I am sure that there is no necessary tension even in these times. I think the, uh, the challenge always, I suppose, is keeping your team together. And I always found that one of the best ways of keeping my team together was to focus our attention not on the things that might divide us, but to try to focus our attention on things that might divide the other side, the Labor Party. I think that's critically important, to fight on issues which tend to unite your own team but which tend to divide the other team because, in the end, you win government and hold government um, by keeping your own votes and peeling some votes off the other side. Tony, I want to now turn to COVID and the fact that the nation is now reopening slowly, in my opinion, too slowly, but nonetheless starting to move to reopen. The main development there, of course, has been the accession of Dominic Perrottet to be New South Wales Premier. He's been very public and, and quite strong in his position that New South Wales and Australia needs to open up as soon as possible, and I think has basically forced the hands of the Victorian and Queensland Premiers as well. To begin, Tony, can I please get your assessment of, of how important do you think Dominic Perrottet is New South Wales Premier has been in shifting not only the conversation in New South Wales, but also the national conversation around lockdowns. First of all, Daniel, I, 
I should pay a little tribute to uh, Gladys Berejiklian. Um, Gladys, a uh, very decent person and certainly um, was the standout premier throughout the time of this pandemic in my judgment. That said, uh, Dominic Perrottet has further accelerated uh, New South Wales' uh, move back to, uh, to, norm to normalcy and good on him for that. Um, I've always thought that once we had the vaccinated pretty well protected and that's been the case for many months now, there's been no uh, substantial case uh, for lockdowns, certainly not the harshness and the duration of the lockdowns that we've seen um, even in New South Wales, let alone south of the Murray. So I am very pleased that uh, Dominic Perrottet has an even stronger preference for freedom than uh, his predecessor. Uh, yes, uh, we're going to have to accept that there will be uh, COVID cases, there will be hospitalisations, and yes, uh, this disease will claim some people, just as other diseases, such as the flu, uh, claim lives every year. But in the end, as I think I've said on in these discussions before, Daniel, um, none of us live forever. Uh, our challenge to, is to accept the reality of death and to try to ensure that between now and then, we live each day to the full. And for me, the great frustration of this last largely lost two years has been that we have been prevented from living life to the full. And some people really have um, found their lives desperately constrained. All those youngsters who should have been at school, in class or at university, enjoying university life, uh, those older people who haven't been able to have visitors in their retirement villages, um, the people who have been sick and maybe died without the company of and the comfort of family and friends. This has been a very, very tough time and I'm far from convinced that policy hasn't often made it worse. So um, we're now moving out of the um, COVID constriction era, thank God. I still think it's incredibly important that we have a wide-ranging, far-reaching National Royal Commission to look at how we've tackled COVID uh, in the various states and territories and compare that with what's been done overseas, including in places like Taiwan and in Sweden, to ask ourselves the question, uh, was it really necessary to lock down as hard as we did and was it ne really necessary to spend as much as we did because at some point, whether it's in a year, a decade or a century, there will be another pandemic. Uh, and while it's fresh in our minds, we owe it to the future to reflect on what we've lived through and try to give future generations the benefit of our experience and our reflection on that experience. I'd just like to develop that observation a little bit, Tony. You were health minister in the Howard government and you were intimately involved in pandemic planning. In your view, what are some of the lessons that we should take from the COVID experience, both in terms of the specific health, health response, but also maybe just some broader lessons or observations you might have about 
you know, what this says about our national character, how we might approach things differently in the future. Any any thoughts you can offer there? I think one of the most basic disappointments to me has been the extent to which national and state leaders here and abroad haven't made decisions, so it seems, on the basis of a careful consideration of all of the various factors, but have tended to put um, all the emphasis on the so-called health factors. Um, If we heard uh, once a Premier telling us that he or she was following the health advice, uh, we must have heard it a thousand times or more over the last 18 months. And yet we do not elect politicians simply to follow someone else's advice. We elect politicians to weigh all the advice uh, and then to run the national interest uh, in accordance with their own value system over it uh, and then come to a decision which, as far as is humanly possible, takes into account the health advice, the economic advice, uh, the environmental advice, um, the mental health as well as the physical health advice. All of this has got to go into good decision-making, but it seems to me that all too often in recent times we've hidden behind expert advice generally, but in particular in the course of this pandemic, uh, health expert advice, yet as we have discovered time and time again in the pandemic, uh, even though people were following the so-called settled science, the science has differed from one state to the next and it's even differed from one day to the next, Uh, experts can disagree. That's why it's important for the politicians in the end to make their own decisions. Tony, just one one more question on the topic of COVID. New South Wales and Victoria appearing, looking like they're going to pursue very different approaches. So New South Wales has said essentially from 1 December, almost all of the restrictions are going to be lifted for everybody, whether vaccinated or not. Uh, Whereas in Victoria, Daniel Andrews has been very clear that those who are not vaccinated will essentially be deprived of many of the economic and social opportunities where they live. I find that, frankly, to be terrifying and deeply un-Australian, and it portends, I think, to a, a very authoritarian-style police state, uh, which could be with us for a long time. And I think many Victorians and Australians are concerned about what is happening in Victoria I'd just like to get your assessment of, you know, the differences, the different approaches being pursued by New South Wales and Victoria and what your assessment is of Victoria in particular. Like you, Daniel, I'm pretty disturbed at the thought that we are going to have, for a very long period of time, two classes of citizens, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. The vaccinated who can more or less move around freely and the unvaccinated who are highly constrained in what they can do and in many instances uh, may even have trouble getting a job. Um, It's really quite disturbing to me uh, to see this no jab, no job rule appearing in all sorts of instances way outside the health professions and the health occupations where uh, you might think it was uh, was reasonably justifiable. So, look, uh, it it does worry me deeply that the future uh, may well bring us more overbearing government 
and more timid and more constrained citizens. I've spent the last couple of weeks in the United States, as you know, Daniel, and uh, I've been invariably uh, uniformly in Democrat-controlled states and the Democrat states tend to have been much more cautious, COVID cautious than the Republican ones. And so uh, here in Washington right now, uh, I can't go to a gym without showing my vaccination certificate and without showing um, a photo ID. Um, I couldn't get on a plane uh, without uh, likewise showing all of this. Um, you can't go into a restaurant um, in uh, Washington, New York, uh, without showing your vaccination status and ID. Now, look, I know it's supposed to be for our own good. Um, it's all supposed to be in order to uh, protect us from <clears throat> this particular dread disease. But it is all reminiscent of uh, officers of, a, of an overbearing state demanding to see papers. Uh, we would never want to be the kind of country where citizens have to produce their papers in order to move around. And yet, just at the moment, that's very much the case. Uh, in New South Wales, it looks like we'll be mercifully free of that very soon, but it doesn't look like we're going to be free of this anytime soon in Victoria. And as you say, I think this is a real worry. Well, let's stick with the US. As you mentioned, you've been there for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'd just like to get your assessment of the feeling on the ground there, not just in terms of COVID, but the broader political and cultural situation. The context for my question is Trump, of course, remains on the scene. He's threatening to run in 2024. Uh, you've got uh, the governor of California, Ron DeSantis, who is probably the second most high-profile uh, conservative uh, at a national level. There appears to be the disappearing presidency of Biden, who seems to be barely there mentally and often physically. Uh, it seems like uh, it's a very divided society, as you've identified between Democrat and Republican states. But more generally, I'd just be very interested in your assessment of what's the vibe like, what's the feeling like on the ground? How do the locals feel about the, the situation in the United States heading towards 2024? I suspect that Americans may be at heart, um, at large, even less politically engaged than we are in Australia. Obviously, the political class is more fragmented and more polarised than ever before um, in America and to a lesser extent perhaps in Australia. But I don't get the impression that the American public are thinking about Joe Biden or Donald Trump that often. I don't get the impression that the American public are thinking about Black Lives Matter uh, or anything like that very often either. I think that the American public are just getting on with their lives and I, I think for most Americans, uh, notwithstanding COVID, uh, life has the usual ups and downs, the usual joys and sorrows, uh, achievements and frustrations and so on. And even amongst the political class that I've been spending a fair bit of time talking with and to over the last fortnight, there's less about uh, Trump and Biden than you'd expect. Um, maybe it's because 
I've been interested in exploring the strategic situation in East Asia. Maybe it's because I've been interested in talking to them about how Australia might more quickly get its hands on nuclear-powered submarines or what we might do to build on the quad, um, build on the intelligence-sharing arrangements uh, uh, currently between the five eyes, but that might hopefully one day soon include Japan as well. Um, because I've been focused on that, maybe I've missed out on all the agonising over uh, whether Trump might come back or what might happen if um, President Biden, uh, if his health were to deteriorate or something like that. I also think, Daniel, that we should never underestimate uh, the rejuvenative power in America and the vitality of American democracy. Uh, yes, all of us have sometimes looked at the last couple of contests and thought to ourselves, well, uh, weren't there better alternatives than these? I suspect even in Australia, sometimes people look at the contest, say at the 2013 election, um, <laughs> thought, couldn't both sides have done better? But, uh, but look, uh, there are some pretty impressive people in the wings. You mentioned DeSantis, the governor of uh, Florida. My namesake, Abbott, the governor of Texas, has his admirers. Um, I look at the vibrant American media scene and uh, I certainly see a lot of diversity and a lot of vigour. So I, I think it's absolutely premature to write off America and I don't think anyone should think that America is wallowing in self-pity or uh, counterproductive introspection, even though it may well be at a slightly lower ebb now than it might have been 10 or 20 years ago. Well, thanks, Tony. I thought we'd just close, uh, just building on what you've you've said there, and I'll let you go shortly because I know you've got to uh, catch a flight shortly. But I think it's interesting in Australia that probably half the population at any given point in time wouldn't know the name of their own premier, you know, pre-COVID. Now they know the name of their own premier. They get fixated on the morning COVID briefings. They know the name of the chief health officer, uh, I think it's been very unhealthy, the fixation on politics. And I am relieved to hear you say that even in the US, which is typically a very politically charged environment, the average person is just, you know, keeping calm and carrying on and and doing it what it is that they have to do in their own lives. And I, what I'm looking forward to after after this COVID episode is over is is people just focusing on their own lives and not being fixated on the on the utterances of a of an unelected bureaucrat. So any any thoughts you can offer there, Tony? Well, only to agree with you uh, 120%, Dan. I mean, you know, obviously uh, when I was a party leader and prime minister, uh, I expected to be taken seriously, but the idea that the whole population would be hanging on my words or those of my colleagues, uh, particularly those of officials, uh, on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis and, and, and desperately hoping that freedoms that are ours by right uh, might be restored to us by um, a benevolent, uh, omniscient, uh, omnipotent government. I mean, really, it has been, it's really been a pretty weird time, an absolutely weird time. And the sooner we can put all this behind us, the better. One of the things that really worries me is this idea that we will go back uh, not to normalcy, 
But to COVID normal, well, wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, disease is part of life. It always has been. And this particular disease uh, shouldn't bring about any lasting change at all. It is just one of the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Uh, and we certainly shouldn't be satisfied with COVID normal. We want normal normal. And the sooner we're there, the better for everyone. Tony, that is a wonderful place to end. Thank you again for your insights and all the best on your travels in the US. And I look forward to talking again next week. Lovely. Thank you, Tony. Good on you, Dan. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.